Welcome to episode 29 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music can give us a reason to live, but can also wreck our lives. I'm your host, James Toth. Way back in episode 18, I listed off for you many of the shitty, low-paying, entry-level jobs I've held in my lifetime. I'm pretty sure I've had more of these kinds of jobs than anyone I know. In the early 2000s, I moved from New York to Knoxville, Tennessee. Music was going well, and I arrogantly, stubbornly believed that removing myself from one of the two or three major music business hubs in the country wouldn't have any great effect on my career. In my defense, I was really burned out on New York, and I wanted to live somewhere inexpensive so I didn't have to hustle quite as hard on non-music related things, you know, while still having access to the things I require in order to live a happy life, like record stores and good Mexican food. Uh, But leaving the rest of my band, my manager, and a thousand venues behind, not to mention my family, in retrospect, maybe not the best idea, but fuck it, no regrets, and anyway, Knoxville was cool. I say music was going well, but not so well that I could afford to sit around not working during the downtime between recording and touring. I thought about applying at one of the local record stores in Knoxville, but decided I might enjoy something a little less retail-oriented for a change, and a little more experiential. In my youthful, idealistic, somewhat literary desire to live as unsheltered a life as possible, I always saw this kind of work as grist for the mill. Now, I'd never romanticize manual labor type jobs, uh, especially having worked so many. I can tell you they're really difficult, but I've gotten far more ideas for songs out of these jobs than I ever did at a record store. Now, working for contractors was always interesting work and provided a treasure trove of song ideas. I've never been averse to manual labor, and, and I enjoyed learning things about carpentry and construction and home repair, though I, I never seemed to retain any of these things. The work crews I was on were comprised mostly of ex-cons, because contractors get a break for hiring ex-cons, you know, disgruntled alcoholics, and every once in a while, a few slumming college kids or artist types like me. Sometimes you could convince yourself you were living inside a Bruce Springsteen song, which is more than the boss himself ever did. Uh, Working alongside parolees and deadbeat dads and other outcasts from society, boy, you learned some colorful phrases and expressions. Now, I was never good at carpentry of any kind. I was mostly a glorified helper. You know, I was often utilized on job sites as a sort of public relations man, a liaison, the guy they called to deal with customers. I learned a few survival strategies on jobs like these, namely how to take mental breaks. I'll share some of these with you. I I should say tactics rather than strategies, um, as the scholar and philosopher Michel de Certeau one of the leading advocates of the notion of workplace time theft, makes this distinction for Marxist or possibly religious reasons I don't possess the depth or intellect to fully grasp. But uh, I should have taken up smoking. Most of my fellow workers got regular smoke breaks. But I would just mentally check out at regular intervals and allow my mind to wander. I do believe it is possible to write the great American novel piece by piece while perched on a fiberglass ladder 40 feet in the air, painting a house. Your body is enslaved, but once you're able to do any physical activity by rote, your mind is free. 
Of course, I was also doing this in the presence of, and often while using, chop saws, jigsaws, and other dangerous equipment, which I actually don't recommend. One trick, oh, tactic, I learned when working with a large crew was to buy time by looking like I was doing some figuring in my head. I perfected this expression of deducing a problem. It was important to be holding a tool while you perform this charade. I'd usually have a hammer in one hand and like a tape measure in the other, and I'd walk around the worksite squinting, crouching. Sometimes if I was in a particularly thespian kind of mood, I'd move my lips and pretend to be crunching numbers. If you look like you're trying to solve some problem, people generally just leave you alone. Now over time, I spent cumulative hours doing this, and probably wrote a few dozen songs in the process. I like to think De Certeau would have been proud. Of course, guilt would soon get the better of me in these situations, and I'd snap out of my reverie after a few minutes and get back to work. I mean, after all, it was not like I was working for Apple or Walmart. Now, you had to be careful and not reveal too much of yourself in these situations. Like you drop an SAT word and you suddenly feel like an undercover cop whose wires are showing through the uniform. Never discuss music with anyone. If you have any desire whatsoever to blend in and not draw attention to your weird self, you gotta learn key, non-committal phrases that can be applied to sporting events, shitty Hollywood films you would never ever see, or handiwork. It's a rebuilding year, I think. I liked it, but I thought the ending was weird. I wish the pneumatic nail gun I have at home was as nice as this one. You get the idea. In Knoxville, I was determined not to do flooring or roofing work, uh, though that's where I had the most experience. This is because I'd recently had an epiphany at a work site where I was installing some hardwood flooring. I thought, I'm a guitar player, a person who relies on my ears and my hands, maybe more than the average person. And here I am standing in front of a loud electric saw, putting my ears and my fingers in peril for $11 an hour and no health insurance. So in Knoxville, I applied for a job as a driver for a vending company. The job required me to drive a truck to various locations around East Tennessee and fill, service, and occasionally repair vending machines. The company was owned and operated by a man named Clyde. Clyde was a Vietnam vet and was legally blind. With his portly physique, unkempt hair, ubiquitous baseball cap, and scruffy beard, he looked almost exactly like director Michael Moore. If Michael Moore had thicker glasses, a sort of Peter Fox squint, and only one facial expression. Clyde's vending company was made possible by the Service Disabled Veteran-Owned Small Business Program, which is a government program that offers set-aside contracts and business opportunities and even startup capital to disabled veterans. Clyde, being a vet and mostly blind, fit the bill. Now, despite my having only been licensed to drive for less than a year, having never driven anything bigger than a Bonneville, having never worked on vending machines, or even thought very much about vending machines, and being from New York City, Clyde hired me over several other far more qualified applicants. This is absolutely 100% because I commented on Clyde's deep purple t-shirt during the interview, which led, of course, to a discussion about music. You ever heard of a guy called Michael Schenker? Clyde asked. Clyde's hero was Michael Schenker. And I think the fact that I had not only heard of Schenker, but I could list off my favorite UFO and Scorpions albums sealed the deal. 
Now, Clyde was also just young enough to have had an appreciation for a handful of 80s hard rock bands like Cinderella, Tesla, and Whitesnake. And you know me, I can talk about that shit all day. So Clyde obviously wanted to work with someone with whom he shared some common ground, as none of the other guys in the small crew seemed to give the slightest shit about music. And they regarded Clyde as something of an eccentric relic. I didn't realize that I was also applying to be Clyde's chauffeur, but more on that in a few minutes. Now, the job itself was only mildly laborious, far easier than painting a rental property or reshingling a roof or installing carpet tile. Now, about half the job consisted of just driving, as most of the places we serviced were far outside the city limits of Knoxville. The trial-by-fire aspect was not so much because of my specific duties, which, like I said, were simple enough, but acclimating to the very foreign culture in which I suddenly found myself. Now, I craved some stranger-in-a-strange-land, fish-out-of-water shit, and boy, I got it. See, at this point, although I traveled a lot, I had never lived outside of New York. And now, I was driving around East Tennessee in rural, economically depressed areas like Coalfield, population 2400, and Oliver Springs, population 3200 servicing vending machines at auto repair shops and factories, and meeting and socializing with the men who worked there. Occasionally it felt like Mayberry, as conceived by William Faulkner, or maybe Cormac McCarthy. Now, I love the South. I've spent almost half of my life living there by choice, so I'm not trying to generalize or offend anyone. But this route was a cold-water crash course in a very particular kind of Tennessee culture, and very far from the relatively cosmopolitan and progressive vibes of Knoxville, which is a great city. I mean, prior to this, I didn't even know anyone who dipped tobacco. And now, I was the only guy who didn't. The only guy who didn't walk around with an empty 16-ounce plastic soda bottle repurposed as a spittoon for backy spittle. Imagine if someone had parachuted Jerry Seinfeld into the middle of an episode of Dukes of Hazard. That was me making small talk with the skull-chewing, neck-tattooed good old boys at the Glass Factory in Norris, Tennessee, population 1500. What's the deal with 180-gram vinyl? Working for Clyde, I learned a lot about things I never thought I would know, like the temperature at which a can of soda will freeze and explode. About 32 degrees for diet soda, 30 for non-diet. And yes, diet sodas freeze and explode faster than non-diet drinks because of the water content. See, you learned something today. In the East Tennessee winter, it was not uncommon to be merrily driving along, doo-doo-doo, and then suddenly be jarred by the sound of diet mellow yellows becoming fucking grenades in the back of the truck. Many a time I pulled over and lifted the roll-up door of my truck, to discover a Poseidon adventure-like flood of cola spilling out all over the tailgate, and all over me. Clyde's company's biggest contracts were prisons, namely Morgan County Correctional in Wartburg, Tennessee, and Brushy Mountain Penitentiary in Petros, Tennessee. The latter penitentiary's claim to fame, if you can call it that, is it was the prison that MLK assassin James Earl Ray, along with six other inmates, escaped from for about 55 hours in 1977. The prison actually closed in 2009. Now, the prison vending machine routes were actually pretty big jobs. They often took the better part of a day. The drive alone was a three-hour round trip. And if you finished early and you were lucky enough to be working by yourself that day, you could while away an hour or two at beautiful Frozen Head State Park, inside the borders of which, in a valley in the park's southeastern corner, 
Brushy Mountain Prison actually stood, towering in sharp contrast to the idyllic beauty of the park. And so while I would occasionally get to service the vending machines at the prisons by myself, more often than not we went as teams of two. And now no one wanted to ride with Clyde, and so being the new guy, you know, I was paired up with our boss for the rides out to the prisons. While the other teams horsed around eating fast food and smoking cigars and doing burnouts in the parking lots with the delivery trucks, I was stuck with Blind Clyde and his 20-yard stare and his endless monologues about seeing the scorpions on the animal magnetism and blackout tours. Now, I know what you're thinking. This should have been totally up your alley, Jimmy Jack. You love music. Well, yeah, and I didn't mind talking to Clyde about the scorpions, but the reason I hated working with him, aside from the fact that his disability meant I had to do a lot of the work, uh, was that he would always try to finish the job as quickly as possible so I could drive him to the guitar center. Clyde, who was legally prohibited from driving, had a hard time convincing his wife or anyone else to drive him to the guitar center, and I soon found out why. The fucker would spend hours in the guitar center. Hours! Now, I was on the clock, of course, getting paid to browse effects pedals and synthesizers and guitars, but again, this is not as cushy a situation as it sounds, and the novelty quickly wore off. Occasionally, Clyde would call me over and ask me to jam with him in the middle of the guitar center. I refused, of course. Is there a personality type more lacking in self-awareness than a person who jams at the guitar center without intending to buy anything? Of course I didn't say this to Clyde. To Clyde, I just demurred and said, Oh, I can't keep up with you, man. You're a shredder. You know, and I'd walk away and look at DJ equipment. But hours at the guitar center. Guitar players out there. Do you think you can't get bored at the Guitar Center? Think again. But Clyde had to keep his chops up because he played in a band. The band was called Altered Grace. Altered was rendered in a stylized, sensational misspelling with an A instead of an E at the end, which would have been clever if not for the fact that if you read it fast, it looked like Alta Red Grace. And they were a Christian rock band heavily inspired by the late 70s and early 80s AOR hard rock they grew up with, And bands like Petra, who I learned around this time, are kind of like the Beatles of Christian hard rock. I was mildly curious about Clyde's band, so I asked one of my co-workers, Eddie, a man in his 60s, about Altered Grace. Their message is loud, buddy, he told me, rolling his eyes. Now, Altered Grace was nothing if not ambitious. The band would get booked to play these tiny little places, often coffee shops and Christian bookstores the sizes of which did not deter the band members from hauling their very expensive and very heavy gear into them. These guys would schlep Marshall stacks and drum kits worthy of Neil Peart from the vending warehouse, which also doubled as the place to store their gear and their practice space, to play for an audience comprised of their wives and a few bewildered coffee shop patrons. And when they played these gigs, inevitably they'd be asked to turn down. Every once in a while, Altered Grace would get lucky and score a slot at some small outdoor festival or something, usually a local benefit for the fire department or a church, where they could really crank the amps and let loose with the roto-toms. But such opportunities were sadly few and far between. Now, did I get roped into attending a few concerts by Altered Grace? Yes. Yes, I did. This was partly political, of course, but I'm also a notoriously soft touch when it comes to supporting people I know. And anyway, you know, I liked Clyde. He was a good dude, and he was fair. He was very far from the worst boss I ever had. 
I just hated working with him. But his being in a band meant he was sympathetic whenever I had to take regular leaves of absence for music-related things. I was touring a lot around this time, and it was never a problem for me to leave for two or three weeks. As long as you're going to better yourself, Clyde would say. I think he was not so privately envious of what he perceived as my lavish rock and roll lifestyle, and he would quiz me for hours about the ins and outs of DIY touring, which Clyde had never done. Of course, with Clyde being a pretty devout Christian, I had to omit a few details here and there. So wait, you're, you're wondering about the prisons. Okay, well, the vending machines at the maximum security prisons were located in the visitor's room where inmates in Gen Pop would receive guests, and in the hallways and offices where the prison guards would work and congregate. Now, I never encountered any serial killers or mass murderers. Uh, those guys weren't part of the general population, but I dealt with guys who were incarcerated for things like drug dealing and assault and battery and car theft. Now, because most of the prisoners I interacted with there were in there for relatively minor offenses, the inmates I encountered were actually all quite amiable. I mean, they'd hold open the door for you when you came in with your hand truck of Mountain Dew or boxes of Little Debbies. Now, these were the guys who worked the grounds on various highly supervised work details and were doing their best to behave. The only assholes I met at the prison were the guards. I'd be walking through the metal detectors with two big boxes of potato chips, you know, trying to minimize my trips in and out of the truck, so I'd carry two at a time, which meant I really couldn't see in front of me, and the guards would just reach into the boxes I passed and grab free shit. Now, what was I going to do, challenge them to a fight? I just abided this. Clyde told me it was just a cost of working at the prison. And the most popular item by far in the prison vending machines was Mountain Dew. Now imagine a prison full of inmates all jacked up on Mountain Dew. We couldn't keep it in stock. Every two days we'd have to return to replenish the Mountain Dew. Then there were things that weren't so popular. My private conspiracy theory is that certain companies were using prisoners to test new products, using the incarcerated as free market research. I formulated this theory after regularly stocking the vending machines with odd flavors of popular drinks, candies, and snacks I had never seen before, and I haven't seen since. Just weird variations like piña colada mounds. Piña colada mounds. When we returned to the prisons to refill the machines and determined something wasn't very popular, we'd often reduce the price so we could get rid of it before the expiration date. That seemed to sell off a lot of the unpopular drinks and snacks, but not piña colada mounds. On that, we decreased the price a third time, making it available for just a quarter. When we returned a third time to find that the row of neglected candy was still full, we set it up for a free vend, which meant that you had to only punch in the numbers and you'd get the candy bar for free. The following week, the machine was still mostly full. Prisoners wouldn't eat this thing for free. Needless to say, I've never seen this particular product out in the wild. Now, one of the perks of this job was that we drivers were free to take home all the expired candy bars and potato chips and canned soda we desired. Expiration dates on such things are largely arbitrary. There's no precise science behind creating a sell-by date. And candy and snack cakes, and especially soda, which is non-perishable, can be consumed months after the expiration date with no apparent ill effect. There was plenty of expired stuff to go around. Needless to say, all these free snacks and sodas and chips, they're a really nice thing to have on tour. 
Now, thanks to my new job, my band now began every tour around this time with a large box of snacks. Not just cast-offs and misfit candy bars, but good stuff like Snickers and Dr. Pepper and Funyuns. We fit in as much of this slightly expired loot into the van as we could, sticking candy bars in bags of drum hardware and rolling bags of potato chips in sleeping bags. Cans of soda on every floorboard beneath everyone's feet. This meant for the first week and a half of tour, almost everyone was eating like garbage, but it was free garbage. Now, while the members of my band at this time were pretty finicky eaters, they weren't so much so that they'd refuse free stuff. But the band was no more amenable to the Pina Colada mounds as the inmates of Brushy Mountain, and so we resourcefully printed out our own wrappers and glued them around the candy bars and sold them at the merch table. To my knowledge, ours was the only band to ever offer candy bars branded with our own logo at the merch table. Does anyone out there still have a wooden wand in the Vanishing Voice candy bar? Surely somebody must have saved one of the rappers. I'd love to see it if anyone does. And when the band had a show scheduled in my new hometown of Knoxville, it was time for Clyde to return the favor and repay me for the handful of times I endured altered grace. I tried desperately to talk him out of coming to witness my band's heretical, improvised, psych-folk stylings, but he would not be deterred. Even worse he coaxed two other co-workers to attend. Now, this was death. Over the years, I have come to prefer the anonymous shows. The gigs in places where you don't have any friends, former bandmates, former lovers, or family. These shows allow you to just do your job and not worry about socializing. When you're playing a city where you'd once lived, it's like that night is your weird and awkward birthday party, and you have to hold court. Now, don't get me wrong, this is sometimes great, and of course I enjoy seeing my friends on tour, but when the worlds collide, it can be really weird. I was once commiserating about this to a fairly popular and well-known musician friend. I asked her, what do you do when your family members or old friends want to see you play, but you know they're not going to enjoy themselves, and you know you're not going to be able to give them the time and attention they deserve and are expecting, I asked. Oh, I just give them the wrong date, she said. Now, of course, due to the pandemic of 2020, I have not toured in well over a year, the longest such break I have ever had from touring since 1997. Now, I think I'd give almost anything to have a weird, this-is-your-lifestyle, awkward birthday party right now, or a poorly attended show outside of Knoxville on a Tuesday night. I would even like to see Clyde there. He'd tell me my guitar was out of tune and that my band should really play more covers and then he'd offer me a slightly expired bag of Funyuns, and we'd sit there reveling in the uncomfortable but familiar awkwardness. Sometimes, in the immortal words of 80s hair meddlers Cinderella, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Thank you for listening. Don't forget our recent poll question, which is, what's the best use of pre-existing non-diegetic music in a film or TV show? Non-diegetic in that the characters can't hear it, and pre-existing in the sense that the song was not written or recorded specifically as part of the soundtrack. I've already had some great responses to this, so keep them coming. Now, before we sign off, uh, a few quick recommendations for you. Uh, Australian death metal surrealist Portal just released a new album called Avow, their most unsettling, demonic, visceral release to date. Now, let me stipulate that despite my adolescent love affair with metal, there are maybe six or seven contemporary metal bands that I still keep up with and buy everything they release. And most of the metal bands I love have long broken up. 
Now I'm going to assume for a second most of you haven't heard Portal, though I know there are at least a few metalhead-inclined listeners who know this already. But to quickly summarize, Portal is an unorthodox band that, while closest to death metal in approach, also bring this sort of demonic, nihilistic dissonance of black metal, the cacophonous instrumental complexity of classic earache bands like Morbid Angel, and the foggy, depressive atmosphere of Funeral Doom. What at first sounds like a blur of noise soon reveals itself to be deeply dynamic, tightly arranged music. The guitars that sound alternately like swarms of predatory locusts and broken glass, moving in seemingly impossible tandem. Not for everyone, I guess, but open-minded, adventurous listeners, as well as the more metal-inclined among you. Fucking Portal, man. I find them legitimately terrifying, I can't say that about any other band. Now, I'm sure under their elaborate costumes that look like they were dug out of a haunted Victorian grave. They're just dudes who like drink IPAs and ride skateboards, but I choose to remain in blissful ignorance because it's way more fun to believe that they're not merely a band inspired by the Lovecraftian universe, but actual Lovecraft monsters summoned to Earth by a hole in the space-time continuum. There's actually a supplemental album released on the same date as Avowal, and you're supposed to play them simultaneously, but I haven't done this yet stuck as I am listening to a vow over and over again. Definitely my favorite metal album of the year and a lock for my overall 2021 top 10. Lastly, my good friend John Mueller, who runs with his wife Teresa the great Within Things curiosity shop slash record store in Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, recommended an album to me on my recent visit that's become an obsession. The album's called Raz, that's R-A-A-Z, by Hushyar Kaim and Bamdad Afshar, and it's one of several recent examples of some of the astonishingly innovative and beautiful music of present-day Iran. Raz blends the seemingly oppositional sounds of classical Persian modes and moods, as well as the region's folk music, with field recordings and electroacoustic elements, synthesizers, and pitch-shifted vocals, and cutting-edge recording techniques to create something truly new and truly mesmerizing. Raz is on the newish 30M label out of Hamburg, Germany, and the label focuses on the vibrant and eclectic music of modern Iran. They only have two releases so far, but you can bet I'll be keeping an eye out for any and all future transmissions, and you should too. The title Raz means secret in Farsi, but I am determined to spread the word about this record however I can. Kind of obsessed with this scene right now, actually. Just getting started down the wormhole. Stunning record. Highest recommendation. And, and when in Sturgeon Bay, be sure to check out Within Things, which also gets my highest recommendation. Episode 30 of The Toth Zone will be the final episode of the season. After that, we'll be breaking for the summer, but we'll hopefully return in the fall. Uh, please send ideas and suggestions and comments for the last episode, which I am daringly planning as a sort of catch-all, themeless episode, so I'm counting on you guys. Uh, we'll discuss the poll question and generally wrap things up, so if you're thinking of sending a question or comment or letter to the editor type thing, now is the time. As for the future, well, there's still a lot of ground to cover. Uh, we have yet to even broach the topic of studio life, and there are many excellent poll questions many of you suggested we haven't even gotten to, and, and I'd like to revisit some more of my older essays and articles as I did on episode 28. Uh, I also promised my pal Riley a brief history of freak folk episode, but I want to be really careful about not turning this podcast into just my life story, and I want to keep the focus on music as much as possible. 
I began the podcast at the beginning of the pandemic, and now that things are getting sort of, kind of, maybe back to normal, I'm starting to get busy again with various music and writing work. So while right now I think a third season of The Toast Zone sounds like it could be a lot of fun, I think we'll just have to wait and see. In the meantime, you can catch up this summer on episodes you've missed and maybe spread the word to people you think might enjoy the podcast. That's all for now. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth and on Patreon at Patreon.com slash TheToastZone. You can also reach me at TheToastZone at Outlook.com. Thank you all so much for sticking around. See you next episode. Till then, this is The Toast Zone.